flows into the 14. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God. <laughs> and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he has raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Cherish these words in your heart. Thank you. Please be seated. Everything depends on the resurrection. And uh, we'll be referring to that in this message. We're looking at the uh, parables of Jesus this summer. And the parables are some of the illustrations Jesus used to address the audiences of his day who could not handle spiritual truth. So he would use parables to get them to start thinking. There would be hidden meanings. They would probably have more questions afterwards than anything. But it was meant to draw out their curiosity so they would look further. And so these are the kinds of things that uh, help us go into the spiritual truth that we need to learn so that we can understand what life is all about. Because unless we really face the reality of death and the reality of heaven and hell we cannot live a meaningful life because we could waste it all if we don't understand what comes at the very end and so today we're going to look at uh, Luke chapter 16 where this becomes an issue so the disclaimer is that the parables of Jesus are not soft and cuddly like the giant panda stuffies that you win at the Stampede Midway. They're more like the uh, bareback bronc riding events taking place at the rodeo grounds. You get a good grip and hang on and you hope you can last for eight seconds. Because his parables are not politically correct. Jesus wasn't telling people what they wanted to hear. And this is also the kind of truth that a modern audience simply couldn't 
handle because these days we sedate ourselves with a lot of false hopes and sentimental good intentions. And we re keep repeating our motto, it's all good. But according to the Bible, that's not true because there is some bad news that we have to face and on, face honestly so that we do not waste our time here on earth and in eternity. And hopefully it's the bad news that will lead us and move us in the direction of the good news as long as we pay attention. So fasten your seat belts, put your hymn books in the upright position. This is going to be a bit of a rough ride. There could be some turbulence because we are going to talk about hell. I've heard a lot of people over the years say, how come I never hear a sermon on hell? Well, this is it. So you're here on, a, on that particular Sunday. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it's so honest and true and it reveals exactly what we are going to face at the end of the road. And uh, we need to understand this so that we can be prepared for it. So we want to pay attention to your word and live our life according to what your word tells us so that our life is not wasted with uh, any kind of false illusions, but that we just understand what you have prepared for us and what you want us to grasp so that we can live meaningful lives worthy of you. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we began this series by looking at a rich farmer who thought it was all good. But it says that night God repossessed his soul. So what happened after that? Well, there's another parable here in Luke 16 that tells us the rest of the story. Verse 19, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. So here we have another rich man who is experiencing the very best life has to offer. It says in verse 20, at his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus. This is a scene we see all over Calgary. We see the homeless on the boulevards and outside stores begging for help. This beggar situation was compounded by painful sores that covered his body. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores. The rich man's gate was a strategic location for solicitation because just beyond the fence, there was more money than any human being would ever know what to do with. Maybe he'll uh, throw me a few shekels as he leaves on his way to the bank. Or maybe the physician who makes house calls will stop for a moment and give me some ointment for my sores. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. If I could just go through the dumpster, I'm sure I could find enough to fill my stomach. But the rich man ignored the beggar. He was offensive to look at. Those bleeding sores were disgusting, most unpleasant. And so the rich man turned his head pretending he didn't see. He wasn't paying attention. Now it's interesting that the beggar's name was Lazarus because that means God is my help. And that name must have been a joke all over town 
Because the only one God seemed to be helping was the rich man. Lazarus was a nameless nobody. And it says even the dogs came and licked his sores. And everybody was just waiting for him to die. And it says in verse 22, the time came when the beggar died. And no doubt his name did not appear in the obituaries. He didn't have a funeral. There was no one to mourn for him. His body would have just been thrown in the valley of Hinnom, where they burned the city's garbage. Lazarus was a nobody on earth. But he was somebody in eternity because he got VIP treatment on the other side. When the time came, the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. This nobody on earth was somebody important to God because he had a name, a name that revealed something of his nature. We don't know the rich man's name because he, his name was not recorded in the book of life. In eternity, the rich man was a nobody. But meanwhile, it was a beautiful day on the rich man's landscaped estate. He was so relieved that Lazarus was finally gone, now he could enjoy his carriage rides out into the lush countryside and smell the honeysuckle. But then he was rudely interrupted. Verse 22 says, The rich man also died and was buried. Well, it was probably a very elaborate funeral. They spared no expense. Mourners filled the streets because the rich man went out in style. Maybe like the Texan millionaire who was buried in his gold-plated Cadillac. As the crane lowered the vehicle into the ground, one of the mourners said, Man, now that's what I call living. The rich man went out in style. His funeral was a front-page headline. Jerusalem has lost a fine, public-spirited citizen. What no one realized was the aftermath. Verse 23, in hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus by his side. The rich man turned out to be just another fool who loved money way more than he loved God. And so he wasted his life living only for himself, ignoring the needs of people around him. He had not been paying attention. So we have these two men who came from opposite ends of the socioeconomical spectrum. And their departure from planet Earth was in sharp contrast with their arrival in eternity. Lazarus's body had been thrown onto the burning garbage dump of Gehenna. And now it was the rich man tormented in the flames of judgment. You see, Jesus was absolutely right. There's a revolution coming that will correct all of the injustices of this life. And it will turn the world upside down. And those who are first are going to be last. And those who were last are going to be first. And those who exalted themselves will be humbled, and those who humbled themselves will be exalted. In the eyes of God, Lazarus was somebody special. And his name, I think, revealed what was in his heart. This beggar trusted God in spite of tragic and terminal circumstances. He didn't give up hope. He didn't turn bitter. 
He never turned away from God. So he was an overcomer with outstanding faith in the most difficult of circumstances. You see, sometimes we are not healed in this life. Sometimes we are not able to recover. And sometimes our lives end tragically. But as Paul says, I consider our present sufferings not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Lazarus was now with the elite of the kingdom of God. He was with Abraham, the father of the faithful. Abraham, the one who pioneered the concept of righteousness by faith, as Paul expounds in Romans. But wait a minute, where's God? You got Abraham and Lazarus, but where is God? Where is this place? Well, we'll get back to that. Verse 23 says, In hell where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. What irony. During his life on earth, the rich man avoided looking at Lazarus. And now finally he sees him so clearly, all of a sudden he's paying attention. And as Warren Wiersbe says, now he is the beggar. Lazarus hungered for the crumbs that fell from the rich man's grand dining table. But now the rich man thirsts for a drop of water that Lazarus could provide. And the amazing thing is that he hasn't changed that much. The rich man is still looking for a servant to fetch him some water. Verse 25, but Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things, and now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. The revolution has come. The great correction has taken place. Lazarus was comforted, not because he was poor, but because he was righteous, just like Abraham. And the rich man was in torment, not because he was rich, but because he was unrighteous. Righteousness refers to the kind of relationship that we have with God. And essentially, we are all un unrighteous before him. God is holy. We are unholy, unclean, unworthy. So we can't go to heaven as we are. We talked about this before, looking at Revelation 21, 27, where it says, nothing impure will ever enter it. God can't let even one sin into heaven for a very good reason. Because this world is an example of the damage that one sin can do. Because that's how it all began. One act of disobedience. Adam and Eve defying God's warning and risking everything to taste the forbidden fruit. Now if you look at that, you say, so what? That's not a big deal. And that's true, you know, sin in the beginning doesn't seem that bad. Certainly not anything deserving hell. But sin is a malignant cancer. And that one sin had the power to corrupt and to contaminate everything until all creation groaned. Because that one act of disobedience 
escalated so that in the next generation, Cain murders Abel. The first sin in the Bible was tasting the forbidden fruit. The second one was murder, and then it just multiplied, and the rest is history. That's why not even one sin can enter heaven. There's a zero-tolerance policy, because if one sin got through those gates, within three years, you'd have an angry mob yelling, crucify him, crucify him. Because sin is essentially hatred of God. And that becomes more and more obvious as sin grows and develops. We see this actually in all the degrees of sin. You know, good sinners are people who don't want God telling them what to do. They want to be in control, so leave me alone. Bad sinners want to do exactly what God forbids. They're proud to be bad boys and bad girls, so let's get this party started. Ugly sinners are those who become militant and commit atrocities against God's people, like the Christians and the Jews. And it really doesn't take that long for good sinners to turn ugly. The Pharisees were good people in the worst sense of the word, as Mark Twain's expression indicates. But their unrighteous goodness was so provoked by what Jesus said and did that they committed the ugliest act in human history. The crucifixion was sponsored by the local ministerial. Wherever there is sin, there is hatred for Jesus. Now at first it may be subdued. It's kind of like the pilot light in the furnace. But it doesn't take that much to ignite the burners and pour out through the vents. Rebel against him and say, we will not have this man rule over us. That's essentially the dynamic of sin, the essence of sin. We will not have this man rule over us. In Paradise Lost, Milton articulates Satan's motto. It is better to rule in hell than to serve in heaven. So Jesus is both the most loved and the most hated person in our society. In Canada, the government and the Supreme Court do not want his name mentioned because it will offend people. And we see the hatred in so many ways, in the way that people use his name in their profanities. And apart from repentance, that hostility will not change. So now the question is, where are you going to put these people who don't want to have anything to do with God, who will not have Jesus rule over them? Where are you going to put them? That brings us to the subject most Christians don't want to talk about. It makes us squirm. We're embarrassed by it. Hell? Is it really necessary? Personally, I always hoped no one would ask me about hell. I thought it was God's only mistake. The Catholics try to help by inventing a doctrine called purgatory, where sinners are punished temporarily. But eternal torment? That bothered me profoundly. And I've had lots of arguments with God about that. I was hoping he would reconsider, but 
Instead, he showed me why it was necessary. John 3.19 says this is the verdict. This is the final verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of darkness. And I know exactly what that's like because that's the kind of life I lived for eight years. I love darkness and I hated light. And when you're like that, you want to be as far away from God as possible. Because this universe isn't big enough for the both of us. And God gave me the freedom to do that. I could have lived my entire life avoiding God, ignoring him, not paying attention. Just the way this rich man did. And then when I died, would I have expected to go to heaven? To be with God for all eternity? No way, are you kidding? God was the last person I wanted to spend eternity with. Rather be lost than let my soul slip vaguely from my own control. I mean, for me, even an hour at church was bad enough. It made me so uncomfortable. An eternity with God, that was my worst nightmare. And that's the way it is, because there's a lot of good sinners in this city who, if they came to our service this morning, would think that this is the most ridiculous thing they've ever seen. People praising Jesus? I don't get it. What's wrong with you? I was exactly like that. So are, are good sinners who have absolutely no interest in church going to want to go to heaven where everyone's praising God for 10,000 years? They wouldn't last eight seconds. The only way heaven even works is if you love Jesus with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Imagine being with people from every tribe, nation, and tongue worshiping God. It would be torture for anyone who doesn't love Jesus. I once uh, overheard somebody saying that they were given the opportunity to have a promotion, but they'd have to move to Edmonton. And the guy said, well, I had to turn it down because I can't move there. I hate the Oilers so much, I could, I could never feel comfortable in Edmonton. And I know what that's like. I couldn't move to Pittsburgh. I hate the Steelers. Do you know that they play on Heinz Field? You know how I feel about ketchup? It would drive me crazy. That environment would be absolutely toxic for me. That's why God doesn't force people to go to church. They're free to avoid him and to ignore him all the days of their life. And when they die, that freedom becomes their fate. But why does there have to be eternal torment? Well, hell is a place prepared for people who wanted nothing to do with God while on earth. And that option is now extended for the rest of eternity. Hell means God lets people have what they want the most. 
What they didn't realize was that freedom from God's presence on earth is very different than the same freedom in eternity. Because in this life, they still were able to enjoy God's blessings. Matthew 5:45 says, Your Father in heaven causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Both of the rich men that we've looked at enjoyed a good life. The rain fell and the crops grew. Romans 2 verse 4 says God's kindness is what's meant to lead us to repentance. But in eternity, that changes. The probability of precipitation drops to 0%. The rain no longer falls. Because when God withdraws his presence in eternity, what happens is all of his blessings disappear with him. So there's no more joy, or peace, or beauty, or hope, or love, or light. So the only thing left is torment. Dr. Hubbard said, torment is the only reward unrighteousness is prepared to pay. That's where you get to spend the wages of sin. But you do have what you wanted the most. Men preferred darkness, loved darkness instead of light. So you see, for those on their way to destruction, the only thing worse than hell would be heaven, because God is there. And that would be an even greater torment for them, because anything is better than God. That's the rationale of sin and evil and Satan. In fact, the rich man never even saw God in the afterlife, just Lazarus and Abraham. Because this was not yet heaven. In John 3.13, Jesus says, No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. See, the gates of heaven had not been opened yet because Jesus had not yet provided salvation and forgiveness through his death and resurrection. When that happened, Jesus promised the thief, Today you will be with me in paradise. So what this is, is immigration. This is the waiting room. And Abraham had been waiting there for 2,000 years. It was a place of comfort and rest. And the wait would soon be over. But even here, the quarantine is in effect. Verse 26. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. So this is not purgatory. There is no purgatory where you are punished to the full extent of the law, and then you can cross over to heaven with time off for good behavior. There's no one who's going to cross over, because that great chasm keeps you safe. You don't have to worry that God will ever bother you again. And that's when the rich man had his first unselfish thought. Verse 27, he answered, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Here again we see his upper-class breeding. 
We need to send a messenger. Send Lazarus on an errand. Send Lazarus? Well, we did that. We sent Lazarus to you. He was there every day. And you hurried by him. Every day you had the opportunity to show him mercy. Lazarus was our invitation to you to move and turn away from your love of money and serve the living God. But you weren't paying attention. I wonder, do you have a Lazarus in your life? Did you help him this week? Verse 28. For I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Let the world be damned, but at least save my brothers, my family. So what is this? Is this remorse or is it just a temporary spasm of regret? Listen to me carefully. I believe that in hell, everybody changes their mind. But nobody changes their heart. Their soul is fixed. The condition of their soul is fixed. All boats are in. They've been tabulated. There will be no recount. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. Oh, come on. That's not enough. It's just a bunch of words. Who's going to pay attention to that? The rich man's contempt for God's word continued even after his death. Verse 30. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. We need some hard evidence. We need something that people will believe. If someone from the dead were to come, they will believe that. Well, no, they won't. Because we often ignore the clearest warnings. We've seen very clearly that smokers die from lung cancer. The evidence is irrefutable, but people still buy cigarettes. We know that drunk driving has tragic consequences. We've all heard the warnings. We've seen the consequences, yet it still happens. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. You see, the rich man's complaint was this. How come I didn't know about this? God did not do enough to warn me. I didn't realize that Lazarus was my last hope. So the rich man actually has a point. The question is, did God, does God do enough to save us from damnation? It's a very good question. Does God do enough to save people from damnation? Well, let's look at the evidence. Let's look at the things that God has done to get our attention. In Romans it says, God has revealed his eternal nature and divine power in creation. The evidence is clearly seen so that men are without excuse. And that's really all he had to do. That's all he had to do. But he did more than that. God also set eternity in the hearts of men. Ecclesiastes 3.11 There are times when our soul stirs. 
And we ask the kinds of questions that could turn our hearts towards God. Questions like, is this it? Is this all there is? There's got to be more than this life. Our soul hungers and thirsts for God. That's exactly what happened to me. That's how I began to turn towards God. My soul began to stir. And I began to realize that there's got to be more. But you know, God did even more than that. He gave us a conscience to enable us to distinguish right from wrong as long as we pay attention. And God gave us people like Lazarus to soften our hearts so that he could reach us. Certainly that would have been enough. But God did even more than that. He revealed his word to us through Moses and the prophets. He spelled it out so clearly. What more could he possibly do? And yet he did immeasurably more than that. Exceeding abundantly above anything we could think or ask. He sent his only son. Jesus came to seek the lost. No. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And it wasn't catch and release. John 10, 27 says, My sheep listen to my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. The good shepherd leaves the 99 sheep to find the one that is lost. You see, Jesus not only came to reveal the truth to us, but to redeem us through his blood. And after his crucifixion, he rose from the grave. And that's what ultimately has convinced us of his truth, as was read in the passage in 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus died on the cross, rose from the grave so that we could have the opportunity to repent from sin and be forgiven and cleansed and receive eternal life and never have to suffer the torments of hell because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Did God do enough? Absolutely. I mean, he couldn't have done any more than that. But he did he sent the Holy Spirit to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And he did even more. He placed into the world samples of his power to change lives. New creations. People like you are the evidence of the existence of God. And so God has done more than we would have ever expected. And he's made salvation available to all. 2 Peter 3.9 says, God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And that's an encouragement to me and for all of us who have prodigals to Understand that God will do absolutely everything and even more than that to reach the lost and bring them to himself. 
There are many who refuse to believe right now. In some cases, the sin has advanced to the point where they've developed a hatred for God. In other cases, it simply made them oblivious. They ignore God. They're not paying attention. But there is still hope because the Lord's search and rescue mission continues until the end of the age. And we are part of that. We are part of that in terms of reaching the lost. We have a part to play. So we need to keep praying. We need to keep loving. And we need to stay in contact. And we will be amazed at the results that God gets from all of his efforts and all of our efforts. If God can save someone like me who hated him, who loved darkness, he can save almost, well, he can save anybody. And what an encouragement it is to know that we have a father willing to go that far. We're going to conclude by playing a video that, uh, where a song depicts this in a very powerful and passionate way. Let's watch this.
light up Mountain you won't climb up Coming after me There's no wall you won't kick down Lie you won't tear down Coming after me There's no shadow you won't light up Mountain you won't climb up Coming after me There's no wall you won't kick down Lie you won't tear down So as we conclude this service, I would just like to say if there's somebody here who's never given their life to Jesus, this is a good time to do that. He has so much to offer. He has put so much into bringing you to this point where you're ready to make that decision. Jesus went to the cross, experienced the eternal torments of hell, experienced the worst part of hell. My God, my God, why?